Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems. Everyone has a subjective, awe-inspiring viewpoint of our reality, and the goal of this podcast is to have conversations with unique humans. Eclectic Spacewalk means a broad and diverse range of Earth-based philosophies viewed from outer space. Send us any recommendations on who we should talk to next. But remember, we are not just a podcast. You can subscribe to our Substack newsletter and get first access to every podcast episode at eclecticspacewalk.substack.com. Connect with us on social media by following us on Twitter at eSpacewalk and the hashtag EclecticSpacewalk. Find us on Minds.com at EclecticSpacewalk. And as always, you can find everything on the website, EclecticSpacewalk.com. We want to talk with anyone over our shared humanity and best practices of life. Now, let's have a conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay. And today my guest is Mike Elias, founder of Idea Markets, which allows the public to establish credibility without relying on corporate media. Welcome to Conversations, Mike. Thank you very much. So let's jump into our first section on your personal journey. Where were you born? I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, Okay. Uh, known as a flyover state to some, but uh, as a fly from state to natives. <laughs> okay. And uh, I'm referring, of course, to Ohio's long and weird history of uh, being the birthplace of great aviators like uh, oh, Neil right Armstrong, for yeah. example. Okay. So uh, Neil Armstrong got about as far from Ohio as anybody possibly could, <laughs> and, uh, and he went back. So I think that says, that says something good about Ohio there. Right, so. right, right. And then how long did you stay there? Uh, I grew up there in the same house mm -hmm. until uh, my early teens, and then my family moved to Philadelphia and then Los Angeles. So I've kind of lived around uh, in the second half of my life mm -hmm. and went to college in, in California at UC Santa Cruz. Okay. And uh, that's, uh, that's been the journey. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't grow up as a, as a mover, and then I kind of became one. Kinda okay. Became a, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. So when you were young, what did you first want to be when you grew up? If Neil Armstrong and these aviation things, is that what you wanted to be or um, something different? To be completely honest with you, which yeah. I was not expecting to do. Okay. <laughs> uh, I wanted to be an airplane. Not a pilot, I wanted to be an airplane. <laughs> Literally Let's just eliminate the middleman <laughs> here. And so, uh, yeah, that was, that was my first aspiration. And then, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've had a series of deep interests that have kind of changed what that aspiration is uh, just over time. Sure, I've sure. gone through a bunch of things, yes. So those early interests, like who, who were your influences? Thinkers, books, parents, community, like? Sure. Yeah. Well, as far as thinkers, um, my family is, is Jewish and agnostic, so I didn't grow up around any particular religious institution, and uh, my dad is a very thoughtful and, and conversation-loving kind of guy. Okay. So we would, you know, talk about everything, and we also enjoy comedy a lot, and my first, you know, philosophical uh, initiations were actually uh, from... I want to say George Carlin. Okay. Yeah. Like a great comedian, great George comedian. Carlin. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I didn't really grow up thinking about religion and philosophy all that much, uh, though I 
I prefaced it by saying I didn't really have any pressure to either. That's good. So it was an so open yes. kind of uh, layout of whatever kind of you were interested in. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And good. then I saw George Carlin when I was maybe 12, and I thought, you know what? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make sense. And so my first philosophical inclinations were, were becoming an atheist, yeah. uh, taking a position on that uh, from uh, George Carlin, and my dad also happened to be an atheist, so we could kind of, you know... You know, riff on that. Yeah, and, sure, uh, lo sure. Lots of conversation ensued. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was it was more like growing up in the South, Southern Baptist. Like you're just oh, inundated yeah. with that from yeah. day one. I mean, Wednesday night service, Sunday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. You know, and th that wasn't all the time, but it was like there. And then in middle school, it was a denominational kind of thing. And so for me, being a journal, the reason why I became a journalist was just like I started asking questions, and then. Obviously, that That's kind of not <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who let that happen? Who let that go? So, I mean, for me, it's interesting that you bring up uh, kind of philosophy and religion because mine was like way, way longer or later on in life as well. You know, before I started to think for myself. So, how how are those influences changed? So, if those uh, early f philosophy, George Carlin, is George Carlin still an influence for you? Um, how's that if kind of evolved over time? I owe the man eternal <laughs> <So> gratitude, <laughs> uh, just as as an early influence, so mm -hmm. uh, there's there's a way in which he'll always be a part of me, and and it, uh, I, I'll always appreciate that. Sure, sure. Uh, my influences, though, in a more uh, mature sense, have definitely evolved a lot since then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I was a rather annoying type of atheist for the next you know five or six years okay. before it was cool. Okay, I'll say that Reddit <laughs> wasn't a thing yet. It wasn't you know. There was no euphoria yet. It was just regular uh, annoyingness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, there were there were things I wanted to figure out. I got shot down by a girl I had a crush on when I was about thirteen, and I went, you know, that was not pleasant. <laughs> I'm I I I want the future to go better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went online and found the early germ of what eventually became the seduction community and learned about how uh, psychology of, of romance and attraction and relationship oh, I see. works. I see. Yes. And quickly found that the more superficial answers to that question were about as satisfying as they were transformative, which mm. is not at all. Mm. If you just ask for a pickup line, you might be able to, you know, seem cool for a second, but then you can't back it up and nothing ever works. Good point. So as that frustration became the new one, mm -hmm. uh, the question was, what does being a good man entail? Uh, how can I be that, etc.? The questions got much deeper in a psychological sense, and that eventually led me to... Uh, spirituality, which I did not intend to find at all, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I started uh, meditating and studying consciousness and just realizing the way that in terms of, in, in the context of being a good man, mm -hmm. that people can pick up on the most minute infinitesimal details of your vibe, and if it's not unconsciously uh, competent, mm -hmm. if it's not unconsciously cultivated um, you're gonna have a bad time oh yeah yeah 
Yeah. Carl Jung talks about that a lot, you know, yes. in his archetypes. It's like, you know, the I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's parsed out as, you know, it, uh, if you don't make the unconscious conscious, the unconscious will then rule your life and you will call it fate. And it's like, right. oof, oof, that's heavy. Because to be honest, like, I really think there's a lot of, or a good proportion of zombies out there. They're kind of just like going through the motions uh, of things. I don't want to put myself on some, you know, tower or anything like that. But at the same time, like, I think uh, critically asking yourself, you know, what does it take to be a good man? What does it take to be a good steward of information? What does it get, you know, asking those questions, are, that's half the battle. Sure. It's, and it's definitely not, you know, socially uh, encouraged uh, all, all too much. But in any case, I that's wanted to tie point. this together yeah, for yeah, you. Sure. In order to handle the unconscious things that sort of come out and mm-hmm. get built into your vibe in a way that you can't control and consciously steer, it's basically the opposite of a pickup line. It's a deep kind of emanation that is a result of a totality of your being. And so I saw you had Vinay Gupta here. I know he knows about yes, that. Yes, yes. Well, the more souls or something yes. like that. So, that level. <laughs> so without any uh, intention of doing so, you know, I've started having synchronicities and started meditating and studying mm-hmm. consciousness, studying what is the self and all that stuff, and uh, started to have spiritual experiences in meditation that were just the most real of the real. I don't care what the truth is. I just want to know what it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The and contents don't necessarily matter. It's just that we're going towards it. Yes. And that was the key that unlocked my death grip on atheism and, mm. you know, unlocked just a torrent that would reverse my position completely. Right. And so I've had this great fortune to uh, be on two ends of this extreme spectrum on a very intense topic. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's a, 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 big, a big part of my uh, intellectual maturation. Yeah, yeah. And that, so is, that a conti- is meditation a continual thing that you, you keep up now? Or is there other ways that you kind of... I mean, like psychedelics is one, one way people do it. Meditation is another to kind of keep yourself grounded. Yeah, I don't have much experience with psychedelics, but uh, meditation has always been uh, extremely rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, it's taken some different forms, but uh, unlocks things that are inaccessible otherwise. Ooh, I like that. Unlocks things that are ex- inaccessible otherwise. Okay, okay. So if we, if we go back a little bit to when you're at UC Santa Cruz, right? What, yes. what, what were you studying and then how, what, what happened after to like, let's you know, catch up till now? Sure. I well, I didn't really want to go to college. Okay. It, the proposition didn't make sense, uh, but my parents always wanted me to and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of the easy thing to do. I actually dropped out immediately and then went back and dropped out again and went back. It's all kind of long and convoluted. <laughs> okay. But, Wasn't uh, right quite sure, now's the time, well maybe no, not now. I've, no. I've, no, I've always been sure that I shouldn't go to college. And I had trouble following through on that conviction <laughs> in a, on a permanent basis, let's sure. put it that yeah, way. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, so I studied philosophy because I had a head start. Okay. I've you know, been working on problems that philosoph- philosophy deals with for some years beforehand, so I figured I can just kind of skate. Yeah. And I was... I was aided by, by my background, let's put it that way. Okay. And um, 
and that's that's sort of the the course that I that I took through it. Yeah. Okay. And then so after that, you move here to LA, and you've been here for how long now? Um, my family's been here for about ten years, and I've been here off and on as I would skip from here to Santa Cruz to uh, China, would do other places. Oh, wow. Like yeah, okay. it's uh, I've I've kind of hopped around, but my family's base has been in LA for about that time, and uh, we're here now. Dope. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And then so um, we'll get into idea markets and more of that a little bit later, but what are, what are you working on now aside from that? Because I know you kind of do some development of sorts. Business development. Yeah. I'm not, oh, I'm not, not I'm an not actual developer. Oh, no. actual business development. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. You're messing this. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. Developing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got half of it. Yeah, half of it, yeah. So uh, I work for a company called Global Liquidity, mm -hmm. and the founder was one of the pioneers of what came to be called high-frequency trading on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And he's built a tool that allows uh, order books and other trading data to be visualized in real time in 3D. So instead of looking at a traditional trading interface mm -hmm. that looks like Binance or Coinbase uh, or Bloomberg Terminal, which they all feel kind of like dealing with spreadsheets or doing your taxes. It's all very foreboding. And uh, there's kind of uh, an ivory tower barrier about it. So ah, what James, the founder of Global Liquidity, has built is a 3D framework for rendering live data in 3D so that it looks more like Guitar Hero. It feels more like Guitar Hero. Mm. And not only is it much friendlier and uh, sort of dopamine-inducing for uh, lay people who've never sure. seen such a thing, mm -hmm. but it gives you an entire dimension more information uh, Immediately, right. when you take an order book, a two-dimensional order book, which shows this instance uh, order structure, the buys and sells and the quantities of each, and they flash and change about every second or so, and you can okay. see what's going on right now, right. you're looking at two dimensions of data in kind of a confusing way. When you look at this in 3D, and I brought my laptop so oh. I can show you okay, later, yeah, yeah. We'll uh, after the break, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can see how the order book evolves. So the front row is the present time, the front row is equivalent to this, uh -huh, uh -huh. but then it also shows maybe 60 rows back. Oh, so you so can you see you have a history of the order book okay. and how orders are being placed and removed, uh, and you can see at a, at a microscope level what uh, traders and algorithmic bots and exchanges are doing. That's very interesting. So it's not necessarily like a, you have a regular X, Y axis and then a Z axis where you're like modeling data, but it's more like you're taking that two-dimensional data and then just putting it in a different kind of interface, right? Like a user experience for the per and then it, or is it more, more in depth even you, than that? Yeah, you okay. are, you are taking data and visualizing it with a Z axis. Right, right, right. The, the labels are different from what you would expect. I see, I the see. The labels okay. of the axes are different mm -hmm. than in a two-dimensional chart. Sure. But um, what you're able to see with that is the context behind a two-dimensional order book, which uh, compared to it doesn't really have as much utility as you might think by its prevalence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then so, I mean, not to get too off topic, but it kind of seems similar now, like with the, the stock market at an all-time high and stuff like that. But then as well, as we just talked about ivory back or ivory towers and such, like I would think it's like 3% of Americans own stocks or something. And yeah. so it's like, it's such a small percentage, but like how do you feel like working in such a high prestige like kind of industry as the stock market, you know, well, Wall our, Street. Our mission is to make it, is to undo that trend, is to cross right. the chasm from experts who are the nerds who go, 
oh yeah, Binance, I'm totally going to learn how to use that. <laughs> and take it to the 4 billion gamers around the world, put it in a web browser on their mobile device, and they can sit here like this using their thumbs to trade. Right, right, So right. it's allowing uh, retail traders to have the same access to markets as institutions and the same power to execute trades as institutions, but with the ease of a video game and the accessibility and comprehensibility of a video game. So and, the goal is, is to reverse that entirely. Right, and you wouldn't, you would even say that it is, a, quote, like gamified or so. I mean, that's literally the point of these things to get the, the user to get more involved, um, incentive based, things like that. Is it a gamification of this? Is that as easy as you can say it or no? If I'm, if I'm gonna nitpick. Yeah, yeah, and go, I yeah, will. yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah. The, uh, what I understand of gamification is it's kind of about stratification and levels and getting people to progress in a thing. Mm, maybe I'm, I see. No, no, maybe no, that's, I'm misunderstanding. No, 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 but that's, I think that's I'm a using... connotation that I get. Right. But in terms of making a thing that is less game like into something that is more game like, absolutely that's the goal. Okay, okay. That's very interesting. And then how, what has been kind of the success over time? How long have you guys had a product out? Or what's, uh, yeah. kind of, what's kind of been the progression? So we got funded in November 2018 by Block Tower, Ari Paul. Yeah, okay. And since then, we've built a 3D order book that uh, shows all the trading pairs on 16 top exchanges and can embed in a website extremely easily with just an iframe. Wow. And um, the framework underlying all of that is uh, open source as well. So if you want to graph uh, social sentiment data or network data or blockchain transaction data or if you want to do uh, trading data in a different way, uh, that's all available for the world, anybody to use and to create 3D views like this. Very interesting. Uh, so, so the stock market is really just your first use case or like, you know, basically proof of concept because it seems like with what you just said there, that there's a whole you know, infinity of other things that you could kind of do with that. Yes, so uh, I've, I should have been clear yeah, at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, yeah. Our first foray here is actually crypto markets only. I see. So when I say the Good top point. 16 exchanges, yeah, I mean Binance, Coinbase, that kind of thing. So we don't have anything plugged into the stock market yet, though what we have could easily do that. Yes. You just need a developer that's the, to go. Eventually, and, that's kind of where right. it's moving towards, yes. Yes, yes. And there's, there's been a lot of interest in doing that, but uh, we aren't going to dedicate the resources ourselves at this moment. Right. Um, but uh, yes, what was your question again? No, no. I mean, well, uh, that was basically, it was moving towards how that can become. I was basically going to transition into, is this really the start of what you kind of had with idea markets, you know, and kind of like seeing things in different views. Because like, I think in ideas markets, it's very interesting that you are putting data that normally people wouldn't even think about, but we absolutely are using it. Prestige, notoriety, et cetera. Uh, and then like gamifying that, I think that's very interesting. But we'll talk about that in the next segment. Um, but what I wanted to talk to you about now is like, what was your, if any, uh, background in cryptocurrency before? Did you have anything at all? Did you know about it? And then this kind of came, or was this kind of, you were already in the, the mix, if you will? <laughs> sure, so my interest in crypto kind of came from a lucky break. Okay. I've known for a long time that I've wanted to work remotely and just be able to make a living from a laptop. And it's I'm nice. not a coder. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I did some freelance um, executive assistant, operations manager type work, operations consultant type work, and one of the first uh, gigs that I got in what 2017 2017 okay. was with uh, an ICO during the summer oh, 
in the, in the in the bubble <laughs> in, in the in the pre-bubble in, okay. in the summer bubble okay the, uh, summer the, bubble. the little bubble yes. yeah 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 so uh yeah it was with an ico company called health chain the founders were uh stanford faculty in the psychiatry department and were creating basically um emr on the blockchain uh electronic medical oh, records on okay the blockchain. sure sure that was uh, a huge thing in like 07 08 with them trying to do it at uh at a national level. But yeah, then, with like Epic and whatnot. Yeah, all that other. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's an enormous <laughs> catastrophe and a mess. Not, not the ICO. I mean, okay. the ICO is sure. defunct now, but the, yeah. the, the, the situation is a mess because you look at the chart and you see, you know, cost of doctors goes like this, cost of administration goes like this. Oh, it's totally. Just, yes, Because all of the redundant records mm-hmm. and everything. So anyway, that was, that was their mission to uh, raise money on an ICO, uh, do EMR on the blockchain, which they already had, you know, basically all the software for. The devs were excellent. Um, and uh, so I became intimately familiar with the industry then. I was in charge of, you know, a lot of their fundraising and marketing and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, when the atmosphere of the crypto markets and the investment market sort of outpaced the founders' comfort level for the, the point where they were in their lives, sure. they had, you know, a, a budding family I and see, uh, yes. other practices that Life. they couldn't detach yeah. themselves from yeah. in time and things sure. like that. And just a different kind of set of priorities that couldn't keep up with the extremely fast-paced crypto markets. Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, the bar for ICO investment went like this. Oh, yeah. It used to be white paper and a big name. And then it became <laughs> white paper and a big name and a product. And then it became white paper and a big name and a product and traction. Like it went yeah, like this. Yeah, it just yeah, sure. skyrocketed. So we started when the bar was down here and hadn't executed on enough by the time the bar was up here. Sure, sure. So... Uh, I, I parted ways with them and uh, wanted to stay in the industry because sure. uh, the, the technology and the um, spirit, really fascinating and energizing. Oh, I mean, that, that was originally my, my thing into it. I think it was 2012. I bought one uh, Bitcoin for like $230 uh, for a Christmas present to myself. Wow. So it was like... Because I just believed in, in, like you said, the community, like the people, the idea. Um, and then it just went wild after that, you know. And then when Ethereum came out, I thought that was way interesting. And I, like you said, I talked to Vinay Gupta about that and his launching of that. And that's just, just crazy to me, you know, just crazy. But then uh, to see it now kind of like kind of bounce back, you know, in the last couple years after the, the bust and stuff. Uh, I think it's it either shows that Bitcoin is really the only thing in terms of like currency, but then Ethereum, the network, the DAOs and stuff like that, like there really is something there. There there's something, and whether it's we're just first use cases and just freaks and geeks level, you know, and it's not even become mainstream, that's okay. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm totally I love the crypto community. It gets a little much sometimes, but I like the kind of anarcho, you know the kind of nature of it that they're kind of pushing back and being contrarians yeah. the memes the that kind of stuff like that so um what was uh we'll get into basically like ideas markets a little bit more as we said but um my journalism story is a little interesting and that's what i originally found you out was i was a one-man band uh in the economic downturn so before when i went to when I went to school, it was, okay, a reporter, an editor, and a camera person. And then basically the economic downturn said, no, you're a one-man band doing all three of those jobs, and then now we're going to pay you a salary of $23,000 a year in the middle of Illinois, Iowa. 
So like I, I have a personal kind of thing with journalism and truth because that original thing of uh, looking at things in a journalistic way pushed me towards philosophy. And I think you have a lot of you know interesting takes on that. So philosophy, who is your favorite kind of philosophers now? I, I mean, is it existentialists? Is it you know theorists? Because like, I mean that that really. What, who you're following, who, what you're reading and stuff really dictates kind of worldviews, philosophically at least. Yeah. Um, I have a variety of favorites. Okay. I yeah. hope most philosophy fans would tell Hopefully you. Hopefully you would. <laughs> and um, some favorites are William James. Okay. Who was not only a great philosopher, but one of the founding fathers of psychology. His, his influence in America was, you know, on a similar level to that of Freud. Sure. And he's perhaps less caricaturable than Freud, but had absolutely monstrous contributions. And his, uh, his philosophy was, was likely informed by that. Uh, I'm referring particularly to pragmatism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the idea that the value of an idea is in terms of its effects, how useful it is. So that's an epistemic leaning that is different from straight empirical science. Sure. And yet yields access to things that empirical science uh, doesn't really have a reference frame for. Mm. Uh, so that's a very light intro to why I like William James. Uh, I also like uh, Wittgenstein. Love it, yeah. And... I would also say Hegel, though I have to confess I haven't really read Hegel. Okay. I'm just a big fan of the Hegelian dialectic, the oh, thesis, yeah. antithesis, mm -hmm. synthesis, mm -hmm. as a model for looking at, at the world and at, at various phenomena. And we can go into more detail at any of those later. But yeah. That's I mean, do, what, so for William James, was it, I, I've only read a little bit of Dubliners and I still have, Ulysses is still on the list. It's up there with like an infinite jest, you Is know. that Henry James? No, William oh, you, Ulysses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that William James? No. No, no, no. I Am I so. confusing authors now? That's all yeah, right. I think that's James' last yeah, name. His, yeah. yeah, his brother Henry James is a novelist. Oh, that's exactly okay. I don't his know. His brother. I, I, yeah. Okay. His got brother. it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But uh, Wittgenstein, and then also, I mean, his biggest thing was uh, the Tractatus philosophy. Tractatus, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Tractatus, and then uh, one of his big things was the the duck rabbit kind of illusion yes. that yeah, yeah. Get, kind of gets subscribed to him. Mm -hmm. um, and then who was the last person you said? I said Hegel, but I, oh, Hegel. I haven't I haven't actually read Hegel. I haven't read personally. too much of Hegel. We haven't today. gotten all personal, <laughs> but I use the thing that gets attributed to him all the time. Okay, all the time. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to take a short break, and uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about the power of heuristics and narratives. Stay tuned. Okay, and we are back to conversations with Mike Elias of Idea Markets. First, uh, we're going to talk about heuristics. So heuristics are shortcuts, uh, different ways of, of seeing things. We talked briefly in the first section. Do you have any heuristics that stand out to you uh, that you use in daily life or love to talk about? <laughs> I absolutely do, and I'm sure I'll remember most of them as okay. soon as we're done. <laughs> However, um, I'll start with uh, the Hegelian dialectic, okay. which is a useful filter for controversy. Okay. When there are two sides fighting uh, in intractable manner, mm -hmm. there tends to be some way in which the strengths of each side can be resolved 
and the weaknesses of each side to be eliminated. Mm -hmm. And that's the antithesis, synth uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So you have the thesis and the antithesis kind of fighting. Mm -hmm. And then there is a way of proposing a solution or of, of configuring the conversation so that the strong points of each side uh, remain and can coexist and the uh, weak points lose their influence. Yeah. Yes. Sounds so, like non-zero sum. Like a non-zero sum game? Yes. Yes. So when, when there is a, a perpetual debate and controversy kind of on in the same, playing the same notes over mm -hmm. and over, uh, it tends to be because the framing of the, of the debate uh, is inadequate to allow for the ex exploration of nuance or the articulation of um, uh, a resolution. That doesn't mean there isn't a resolution. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're not capable of, of coming up with one and, and having a consensus. Uh, it's, uh, it's just a, a stuck point. And the existence of the Hegelian dialectic and the successes I've repeatedly seen uh, personally, you can't necessarily replicate mm -hmm. philosophical insight on a mass sure, scale, sure, sure. that necessarily, yeah. um, gives me eternal optimism that any protracted debate uh, within oneself or on a societal scale has a resolution, has a way of, uh, of moving forward in a, productive, in a productive way, that you can have it all. Right. Both sides can be happy. Um, so in some way, shape, or form. Like there's some equilibrium way that like deals with all the ups and downs of your position, my position, yes. the yes. context, just everything. It's a, it's a third dimension. Mm. It's it, a, it, the, the, the analogy I like to use is it's like a, a bicycle. Mm -hmm. When you're learning to ride a bike, you can, in a, if you're going real slow, it's easy to fall to the left or fall to the right. But if you go straight neither happens. Mm. There is a direction in which a conversation can move that has neither the pitfalls of, the, of one side or the or other. The other. Yeah. Uh, all that's necessary is for both sides to go in that direction. Right. And that's easier said than done. Um, but I find, I find that framework to be a helpful heuristic when looking at uh, controversy. So let's take it a little bit further. Sure. Let's get a little crazy. Please. Uh, so philosophically, with that, do you believe that that dialectic uh, is a problem, or I don't want to say problem, is it uniquely human in terms of like here on Earth, or do you think that that's like a more broader kind of naturalistic kind of bedrock state? You know what I mean? Like with other beings, trying to get into other beings and stuff. Because, Bring it on. Because humans, you know, like you could tell that we're very social creatures, and other other you know, creatures may not be that social. So I'm just trying to think yeah. about like how you could frame that in terms of, was well, that a uniquely human thing, you know? I think the Hegelian dialectic is part of the physics of ideas. Mm, okay, I like that. And I mean that in exactly as <laughs> abstract a way as that sure, sounds. Sure, sure, sure. Um, the end. <laughs> I like that. Okay. So in, uh, you're familiar with non-zero-sum games though? Yes. Right. So, do, I mean, is that something that you kind of ascribe to when even just looking at other at problems in yourself like that you're dealing with because for me in the last kind of I want to say a couple months that I've like wrote that essay and stuff now I just see it uh, do you see this kind of dialectical wager or dialectic more so now that you're seeing it everywhere like your subconscious is working on it 
I want to make sure I understand yeah, your yeah, question sure. properly. Yeah. You're asking, do I see the heuristic in play in the yeah, world yeah, often? Yeah. Yes, yes. 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 I, I absolutely do. Um, one example, uh, one of the easier examples because it has a large time scale and it's a hot topic, is cultural views on sex. Okay. Sure. The history of 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 you know recorded history tends to be uh, religion dictating views on sex and being uh, oppressive and saying it's basically bad, don't do it, it's bad. Sure. And uh, modern culture has rebelled against that and said, no, it's good, free love, biology, uh, etc., etc. Yeah, et yeah. <laughs> and there's an antithesis there. And what a lot of people are realizing now is that there are consequences to uh, unbridled sexuality. It's not that pleasure is bad or that sex is bad or that it's inherently uh, sinful or anything like that. But what it is fundamentally, neither sinful nor good, is powerful. Mm. And when you have something powerful, you have to treat it with the respect and discipline and the right uh, relationship to it that it deserves. And that relationship is neither total excessive oppression or mm. excessive expression. expression. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, discipline, uh, an approach to sexuality that involves discipline is uh, emerging in, in some subcultures and particularly online and whatnot. And I'm a big fan of that because it uh, is the right one after a very long you know, social battle between two extremes. Sure. Uh, it's a disciplined deliberate conscious approach to sexuality is uh, potentially could solve every human problem, yeah. literally everyone. Wow, that's pretty prophetic, I guess you could say. So what, um, what is your ideas on like pendulum swings? Because what you just described is almost a pendulum swing. It was at this place and then it went all the way here. And is it really that, is it, is it always in the middle? No. Yeah, that's a good point too. No. Yeah. Uh, when pendulums swing repeatedly, it might be a pretty good sign that it's not the middle. Mm. That the middle is not where to go, or it would have been maybe obvious. And sure. also, a lot of things are not really measurable on a spectrum. You have okay, that's uh, a good point. But I don't, I don't want to digress too much. No. Uh, I, but in general, I, I like the sexuality example of the Hegelian dialectic yeah. because it's so clear and mm -hmm. useful. Um, but the answer is no. It's not necessarily in, in the middle, whatever that might seem yeah, to be. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, and then let's, uh, let's talk about another um, kind of interesting, I guess you could say heuristic, heuristic if it will, but for me as a storyteller is very uh, synonymous is narratives. Um, you know, what, what kind of we tell ourselves about things. We tell ourselves, uh, you know, stories about uh, history. We tell our stories about, you know, as you said, sexuality of sorts. So what, what exactly is a narrative? And then we'll get into what exactly is a fiat narrative in sorts. Sure. Uh, what is a narrative? That's a little abstract even for me. Yeah, but well, I will concede <laughs> that in order for a culture to kind of hang together, we all kind of have to agree on what world we live in. Like a worldview, if you will. Or, or just, just a, you know, a vague definition of reality. Mm. Uh, and I think when I say narrative in a kind of vague, all-encompassing way, I think that's what I'm referring to. Uh, just a story with a general social consensus 
which if you agree, you'll, you might be perceived as sane. Mm -hmm. Like we can argue whether we uh, you know, live in a fascist state or in any state or whatever, we can argue that till the ends of the earth. Sure. But if I say we live on Venus, that's not a narrative that's gonna garner a lot of consensus. Sure. So when I say narrative, I think the main function is, is just to have some sort of starting place socially. Right, and, and, yeah. and that's huge because, I mean, honestly, where you start is half of where you're going, I guess you could say, um, you know, what the goals are uh, when you initially set out on, on things like that. So, Mike, we're going to talk a little bit about fiat narratives. So, in your blog post, uh, you wrote a great post of, of some examples of this, but let's set it up. Um, centralized media institutions create, quote, fiat narratives by forcing self-serving interpretations of reality on the public. In the same way that fiat currencies are valuable only because governments say they are, fiat narratives are true only because media corporations say they are. So just a little bit of framing, fiat currencies, the dollar, the euro, etc., they get value by central banks, governments, uh, working in tandem to basically say what their value is. And then fiat narratives um, are only true because media corporations kind of frame them that way. So let's kind of dive into that. Sure. So fiat narratives. Sure, fiat narratives first. I can't take credit for the term because uh, Ben Hunt of Epsilon Theory came up with it first. Okay. I thought I had come up with it, but someone helpfully informed me okay. that uh, there was someone even cleverer than I. Mm. And uh, fiat, the word, is Latin for let there be. Oh, in, okay. in, you know, in a lot of colleges, you know, fiat looks, let there be light. Ah, you know, there, okay. there are a I lot of know that. Yes. Okay. So hmm. when you're saying let there be money, you're <laughs> fiat money, that's where it comes from. Right. And fiat narratives, let this be true, that's what they're saying. Sure. It's, a, it's truth by declaration uh, rather than by, you know, well, rigor. Rigor, yes, 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 yes. Or something like that. Uh, so that's, that's what's meant by, by fiat narratives, and I think that's clear now. Cool. And then uh, we'll go through some examples. So media corporations have near limitless power to enforce fiat narratives using tactics like these. Um, so limiting the scope of discussion. So Democrat versus Republican, you know, you kind of put two people or two sides against each other and there's no third or there's no nuance or there's no fourth way, etc. Yeah. Uh, in order to perpetuate or keep alive a narrative that doesn't you know, make sense under scrutiny, mm -hmm. one way to do that is to allow people to sort of vent outrage at each other in a cyclical manner. Sure. Uh, it doesn't matter what the answer is if you're asking the wrong question. Mm. So this is a tactic that corporate media use to perpetuate a narrative that they would like to be true by fiat, by declaration, mm -hmm. uh, by preventing the right answer from being an option on the table, sure. from, from preventing satisfaction by limiting limiting the scope of, of discussion, yes. And then if that's one aspect, let's go to, I guess, one side of the spectrum, which is the great firewalls like in China that literally you can't even go on certain websites and that that's just the way it is. If you go on in the internet, unless you're on a, I think a VPN or something right, like yeah. that, then it, you're just not on it. And so that alone shows the totalitarian-esque, authoritarian-esque yes. aspect of that? Yes, that's a, that's a totalitarian way of perpetuating a fiat narrative. Sure. The Chinese government wants you to believe X, well, we're just going to not let you read about not X. Right, right. And it's pretty simple and straightforward. So if we move, I guess, from the uh, less abstract to the more specific, then it would be things like uh, distributing airtime. I mean, $4 billion of free airtime went to Donald Trump in 2016. 
maybe that had an influence, maybe it didn't. Yes, well, there's a, a famous quote by uh, Les Moonves, the then CEO of CBS. Okay. Oh, yes. Actually, said, I remember this. Yes, yes. I'll bet okay. you do as I a journalist. Do. Yes. yes. He said, uh, Donald Trump may not be good for America, but he sure is good for CBS. Oof. And that might not be verbatim, but it's close. It's close. It's yeah. close. And when you're ahead of CBS, the top four, one of the top four networks in, yes. in the nation, that's, that's saying something. Yes. So it, it illustrates... Um, the, the broken incentive mechanisms that corporate media has in terms of uh, doing its duty to inform the electorate. Sure. And then also, I mean, sponsoring entertainment and media. I mean, the, right now the NFL playoffs are ha- going on and there's huge patronage uh, in terms of nationalism, like showing jets flying over, et cetera. And then also you go into like the CIA involvement in media or, you know, the Hurt Locker, um, Zero Dark Thirty, you know, et cetera. Yes, yes. And uh, the involvement of government agencies like the CIA, like uh, the Department of Defense, for example, uh, lent, you know, the Navy's planes to Top Gun in order to help them. You know, the, the military is often involved in the production of military movies. They have to be, because it yeah. wouldn't be happening. It's, it's, <laughs> yes, it's more <laughs> difficult to, to DIY an F-14 yes. on an aircraft carrier. I bet that's true. Uh, but uh, that's, that's one way that, you know, the, the government allows media to exist that it can sort of steer or approve of or have some kind of uh, message control on. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, the New York Times has a pre-approval process, the CIA pre-approval this. process, yeah. that, you know, when, when uh, sharing something uh, important with the public... They run it by the CIA for national security mm-hmm. concerns. But the Constitution doesn't say we will not inhibit the freedom of the press for national security. It says we will not inhibit the freedom of the press. Period. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there have, there have been constitutional, absolutely fundamental breaches of what media is supposed to be and do for uh, America and for the world. So... Uh, Government agencies are are involved in all these sneaky ways, and uh, I believe it was Bernstein of Woodward and oh, Bernstein, yes, yes. the the Watergate guys, Watergate. Yep. Uh, wrote a fantastic expose on this on the CIA's involvement in the media, and that's readily available online. I can yeah. send yeah, you a link. I mean, yeah. even going past the Pentagon Papers, but like the Panama Papers recently shows how much celebrity is kind of now a newer thing. That's just you know they have governments, celebrities, all this money in tax havens, basically, just hanging out. And then that was, uh, these papers come out, and then... And then they blow over. (laughs) And and the Afghanistan papers... Oh, it's recently, yes. Yes, much more recently and Mm -hmm. much quickly into the womp womp zone. Yeah, exactly. Very uh, uh, telling, Yes, you could say. Well, and then also, let's... uh, I have a couple other... This just made me think about like whistleblowers in general. I mean, you think of Chelsea Manning with the um, the cables to like Julian Assange, to then basically goes out on WikiLeaks, and then we have all of this corruption at the highest of levels up to the drone program up until Obama, you know, literally killing a United States citizen, Anwar Al Waqi, who's like 16 years old. That's insane, but that's again, the media kind of positioning how that that's okay, or this current things with the Iran. Um, so it's, the whistleblowers are just very interesting because that just throws a, throws a wrench in everything, but you've seen the, the, the treatment of Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning. 
to then why would people or Thomas Drake, Thomas Drake for the NSA, you know, Snowden, et cetera, you can name them all. And then they've been vilified by the exact media that yeah. should be the people pushing that. Yeah. And given that it's uh, winter in Russia, he probably is Snowden. <laughs> I'll give you two snaps of that. All right, all right. Here, so moving on to uh, the two other examples that maybe more, instead of abstract, more specific or soft, would be scripting local news on a national scale. Yes, there was a viral video that illustrated this very cleverly not too long ago, and it still makes the airwaves, pun intended, now and then. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it ends with, you know, about 100 local journalists saying, you know, and this is a big threat to democracy. This is extremely dangerous for democracy. They say, you know, all together synchronized into the camera. <laughs> this is extremely dangerous for democracy. Exactly. And you have all these, and it's, it's orchestrated so that you can see the sort of strings being pulled that uh, create a uniform word-for-word -word narrative that's being delivered uh, in an extremely centralized way. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, extremely dangerous to democracy. Absolutely. And then, and then the lowest, I think, well, not the lowest, but I guess you could say the most soft or specific is just picking what goes on the air. And so there, as me as a journal, former journalist, like, I don't know, to, but to clue people in, basically at every morning, usually, you have a news meeting where everyone comes in, you say what you're working on, either for that day in the future, and then the news director or producers dictate right then and there what stories you're covering, what stories you're not. So whether or not you'd cover, say, um, the local cat, you know, fashion parade, or do you go and then use your time to research, you know, the corruption charges in the police department, etc. So um, I think a, a big thing of that is uh, the movie Spotlight. Um, I don't know if you've. I seen haven't it. seen Spotlight. Okay. Fantastic, and exactly kind of what we're talking about. But long story short is basically that it was about the Catholic Church and Archdiocese in Boston, very religious. As, as you know, and that basically that was dictating the narrative on how the Boston Globe was reporting on that. And then it took literally a small uh, you know, group of journalists to then get that out. Uh, they stood to their guns and then eventually the Pope uh, resigned, you know, Ratzinger, because he had facilitated the moving of, you know, church prefects or people around or something like that that Spotlight had reported on. It won the Oscar for the movie adaptation, but phenomenal how you you don't we don't have to cover Justin Bieber as you said uh, we don't ha we can cover Congress in a, a different way there's different ways to do that so just go into talking about like the specificness of this story versus that story because that's as easy as one person's ideal viewpoint and what they're kind of being paid for at, at a network in a yeah. grand scheme it, it, <laughs> absolutely yeah um, and then no amount, and as you said, no amount of public art cry or reasoned dissent can change fiat narratives if doing so would threaten the power of their issuers. So how much power does, you know, New York, the New York Times, the paper of records still have? How much power does, say, uh, a local news station have in, the, in those kind of senses? Uh, it's hard to quantify, and that's the problem. Absolutely. That's, that's, a, that's one, of the, one of the problems that idea market aims to fix. Sure. And then we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but those problems, let's talk about the tobacco strategy. We talked off air uh, before that, but it basically was the tobacco strategy was in the 1980s, uh, or no, sorry, even before that, 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, where they basically poo-pooed the research uh, linking smoking and lung cancer. And that they just, you know, put out media report after media report or narrative after narrative. And then eventually it took us 40 years to get over that. 
but the same people that are doing that are now doing that for climate change. And so let's talk about how, you know, propaganda, if you will. Um, a lot of people think about propaganda as something as like Stalin or way back when in those kind of times. But so, propaganda is very subtle even nowadays uh, with terms of um, targeted advertising, etc. So I guess let's just riff on how propaganda kind of influences these networks, um, especially into like digital networks such as Facebook, Google, Twitter. Have you heard the name Edward Bernays? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, so Edward Bernays is Sigmund Freud's nephew, which you know, but yeah. I'm saying just in case anybody <laughs> yeah, yeah, hasn't yeah, sure. heard yet. Yeah. And he pioneered, pioneered the field of public relations about 100 years ago. Bernays. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. yes. Now it's, yep. He yep. used Freud's uh, theories about the unconscious to help institutions shape public narratives. And the word propaganda already had kind of an icky connotation. Oh, yeah. So yeah. they called it public relations. Mm. And that's an industry that still exists. Still. And uh, is probably not the only instance of itself. But in any case, we have a very long tradition of controlling the narrative on an institutional scale. Uh, and we're only getting better at it, especially now that we can have targeted advertising and filter bubbles and algorithms that not only are closed source, but a lot of people don't really care about. You're having fun on Facebook, why would you look under the hood? Do you have Dopamine. the technical tools to yeah. do so? Um, the power of, of propagandists has uh, increased with the power of, of uh, anybody to access information. So. Who was it? 1985, he wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death. Oh, Neil Postman. Neil Postman. Great. One of the best. That was a prophetic book. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and uh, Aldous Huxley, who said, uh, or was it Huxley? Anyway, somebody said, there's no need to really combat the truth to just drown it in a sea of irrelevance. Oof. Yes. And that's that's one of the frequent tactics that, uh, that's employed now. Uh, it's very easy to get a quick dopamine hit. It's very easy to spark outrage and to kind of circumvent the critical faculties. Mm -hmm. And not only is it easy to do that, it's profitable. So one of the main ways uh, propaganda propagates is uh, just by uh, pushing the buttons and, and cashing in when we can't resist. People, individuals, have no antibodies necessarily. Mm, it takes a, a great point. deal of, of effort and discipline and, and more than most people have the luxury of developing. If people right. are just trying to survive or you know, want to check Facebook on their smoke break to get a laugh or, or whatever, um, they don't have an arsenal to go up against an arsenal of propaganda powered by modern technology totally. that exists to exploit and deceive them. Uh, so it's not really the public's fault that we're in the state we're in. It's, uh, it's a matter of uh, who has power and what it's being used for and for what reason. Great, great. And then so with that, I hope that uh, we'll be inoculating ourselves with more antibodies. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we're going to take a short break and when we come back we'll talk idea markets. Hello and welcome back to Conversations. I'm here with my guest Mike Elias of Idea Markets. First let's talk about there may be an epistemic crisis or maybe we're past the crisis and now in a revolution. Yes, we are noticing the crisis okay. now. 
And the crisis is we haven't really left the age of Galileo in terms of public knowledge. Mm. Uh, in Galileo's time, of course, the Catholic Church basically decided what everybody believe would believe. And when Galileo said uh, contrary-wise, mm. uh, his voice was suppressed and he was made to recant, etc. And uh, the top-down power structure of narrative creation uh, persists to this day. Mm. Uh, science, of course, was, was very much inspired by Galileo's strategy of uh, epistemology mm. and observing things. Uh, but the, the narrative propagation on a, on a more uh, global and, and society-wide scale uh, has not changed at all. And the, we are experiencing the effects of that and the inability of a centralized authoritative epistemology to adequately handle the nuances of the information age. Right. And then science, let's, I guess, get science out of the way because that's an ep epistemology in certain yeah. ways. Like, sure. So in that, like if we take science out of it, then obviously public discourse, uh, ideas, um, values, um, you know, history, et cetera, all those kind of things are dictating how these narratives go about. Right. So, so what what is what is it made uh, what has kind of brought about this kind of noticing about the crisis? Is this the internet? Is it us just becoming more evolved uh, in our kind of ways to see society, et cetera? Um, the internet has been a, a, a tool for the realization of this. Yes, as people are able to uh, do research on their own and congregate into groups that share their beliefs and rely less on corporate media, which, despite its deceptive practices, has historically had its sort of unifying effect. Uh, relative to now, um, so there's there's been this two-sided, double-edged sword mm, that's a good way to uh, evolution, mm -hmm. where people have more independent ability to research and less reliance on a centralized uh, media agency, and at the same time, uh, less uh, capacity for a unifying narrative. Is, sure. that, is that clear? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sense? And okay. and then idea markets. Aim, or excuse me, Idea Market aims to change the incentive landscape for creating that common knowledge. Yes. So we talked about the importance of common knowledge. Yeah. So then why is it now? Why is it needed now? Because that double-edged sword seems, or the pendulums, yeah. why is it? You sure. Know? So historically, the best knowledge has never overlapped with common knowledge. Mm, good. Great yeah. knowledge and common knowledge have always been mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessary anymore. Mm -hmm. We have the technology for that to not be true anymore. Uh, and we haven't taken advantage of it. Um, there's no need to be told what to believe, basically, and, and, and policed or, or moderated, mediated between uh, like there was before the internet. Uh, of course, for hundreds of years, uh, a journalist who went to school and was trained and paid their dues and rates came up through the ranks sure. of an organization that was trusted by industry and by the population to be a mediator between the edges of reality and firsthand sources on important stories, uh, to mediate between all of that mm -hmm. and the information consumer, it was perhaps the most efficient way to handle that right. uh, problem. Uh, and now it's not only outdated, it's inadequate to the challenges of the information age. And I mean, it, it, I think I, I love what you just said, the last word, inadequate, because today, 
being a human is way different than it was just 50 years ago, way different than it was just 10 years ago. Um, and I think that like if you were to kind of visualize some of this information was almost at like a drip kind of, you know, you'd get as much information as you could from the bodies at, at B, but then now it's just a fire hose. You know, it's just the whole thing's off, information's coming, you don't know if it's good, if yeah. it's useful, is it bad, et cetera. So in, in terms of that, like what, um, well, let's go back, I guess, to the history of the idea. So what, how did this all first come to be? Like, were you just thinking and had an aha moment, you know, or was it more of a first inkling and that grew and grew and you just kept building on it, building on it? I don't remember exactly how it started, okay. but I knew I was relatively new to crypto mm -hmm. and had just, you know, learned to use exchanges and trade and stuff and was thinking about the incentives involved and how the markets were basically a measure of confidence. And if you were right, you made money. And if you were wrong, you lost money. Mm -hmm. And this seemed like an excellent way to sort knowledge in general. And so I began to try to figure out how using exchanges and markets and trading venues, one could represent the components of human knowledge in some way. It's to introduce those same sorts of incentives uh, without interference by a centralized body, just people competing, mm -hmm. uh, to curate what we already know, what somebody already knows. Right. Because, uh, as I said, the best knowledge tends to never overlap with the common knowledge. Okay. So if there's some freak in you know, Tahiti who has figured out in his basement how to cure cancer 50 years ago, right. there's not really a means by which we would know that. Yeah. Uh, so and who the, knows what our yes. trajectory and history would be from those little things throughout, throughout time. I right, guess you could say. right. So this is a, a human survival level issue and we have the technology to access the best knowledge in a way that can be trusted to be organic in a way that centralized control of media and narratives cannot be trusted. Mm. And it is time for us to use it. And uh, so from using that then, uh, you, you, I think this was something you tweeted or I'm not for sure. We'll see about the attribution. But it was, uh, <laughs> success is achieved not when lies disappear forever, but when the trend reverses from a competition to exploit, terrorize, and divide the public to a competition to serve, inspire, and unite it. Yes. That is a very different side of the coin. Yeah. Different objectives, different goals from the beginning. So yeah. how, like for success, I guess let's talk about what its success and failure would be in terms of, um, not exactly narratives, but I guess the idea in, in, for idea markets. Sure. So idea markets changes the incentives of knowledge common knowledge creation. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, if you're a, a media corporation, which in itself is kind of an anachronism, you have media, corporation. <laughs> well, which one is it? Yeah, exactly. That's are you one. trying to inform or are you trying to profit? Yeah. Just the existence of such a thing as a media corporation is its own comment. Right, right. So right. Uh, in order for media corporations to profit, they have to do the things that result in retaining viewers. That often means uh, encouraging polarization because if you don't trust anyone else, you're not gonna leave. Sure. 
and uh, encouraging outrage because if you're provoked, you're going to pay attention, even Way if it's more. negative attention. Yep. Yep. Uh, and and fear and using human psychological vulnerabilities to extract attention from us. We are basically being farmed by corporations that have access to our attention or profit from our attention. So the incentives there are to divide people so that they won't leave, mm -hmm. to freak them out so that they won't turn it off, mm -hmm. uh, and so forth, to upset them so that they pay attention and etc. Mm -hmm. So that's the direction that public knowledge is going. And the results of this, the effects of this, are readily apparent to literally everybody. There's yeah. not a baby born in Iraq that doesn't know there's a problem. Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, what Idea Market does is it requires narratives to be backed by financial risk. So the way it works is it doesn't outright prohibit you from purchasing uh, a high rank on the market and creating the appearance that you are well trusted. However, publishers that earn trust and earn this investment organically get that promotion for free. Mm -hmm. And it becomes increasingly expensive, prohibitively expensive, to fake that level of trust the more people participate. And as corporate media's attention-worthiness uh, not only continues to lag, but to be registered on this first global dashboard of what people really believe, uh, they will be forced to either ignore the game or play it. Right. And if they ignore the game, they'll simply be left out. And if they play it, they will have to organically earn public trust. Right, right. And then organ organically earn public trust. And that's through, I guess, prestige or the people. Um, well, let's go into how, how, they would e how you would quantify that. Let's go into kind of how sure. that, that kind of works, sure, I guess yeah. you would say. In terms of quantifying trust. Yes. We're, we're really we're quantifying credibility. Mm -hmm. And the way Idea Market allows that to occur is by inviting people to... Uh, buy tokens that represent a publisher, NewYorkTimes.com, FoxNews.com, InfoWars.com, uh, WikiLeaks.org, sure. etc. Mm -hmm. in order to signal confidence. So in the same way that a uh, stock market exists so that the public can signal confidence in a company's future profitability, Idea Market is a decentralized marketplace that allows people to signal uh, public confidence in a publisher's attention worthiness. Yeah. So uh, that's the, the metaphor, the translation that's being mm -hmm. done there. Uh, so in terms of measuring credibility, it's measured in risk. How much people have put into this to say, uh, I bet that if more people see this, even more people than that will agree that even more people than that will want to see it. Right. And uh, a purchase on idea markets is a wager on the attention worthiness relative to everything else in the market of a publisher. So mm -hmm. if a corporation wants to compete with that, they will have to not only earn public trust compared to nothing, they'll have to earn it compared to any other potential choice the public might have. Right. So the way I would recommend that they do that is by scouting the hot small publications and absorbing their narratives, entertaining their uh, theses, their evidence, bringing them into the conversation, 
because without taking on the uh, investigative qualities of the publishers that are earning trust organically, there will be no way for a media corporation to continue to deserve trust. Right. And then let's let's talk. This is also on the Ethereum network. So let's yes. also let's let's parse out exactly how this happens in terms of like coins, uh, et cetera, you know, tokens, et, et cetera. So Ethereum is a decentralized like marketplace. It's similar to Bitcoin. You also have tokens, Ethereum, Ether, as they call it. But you guys are more running on the protocol, right? At the le level of protocol, is that is, is, is am I familiar with that? Like the Ethereum. How how exactly are you guys running on Ethereum? Is basically yes. We're 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 running on the Ethereum blockchain, and. We use Dai for the currency, so MakerDAO is is involved, and we're also using RDAI, which is a uh, adaptation of Dai that allows tokens to earn interest because mm. they are plugged into Compound, and Compound is a decentralized lending platform where people can take out uh, collateralized loans using cryptocurrency uh, oh, wow. trustlessly. Oh wow! So when when you make a purchase on Idea Market, the money that you spend to get a token representing your purchase is deposited and held into a compound uh, smart contract oh, okay, so yes. that people can take out loans against it. And that money that you just spent in Idea Market earns interest. Oh, wow. And Idea Market then distributes that interest on your money right. disproportionately to market winners. Wow. Okay. So again, incentives on every layer. Yes. Every layer. <laughs> yes. Um, it's the the purpose of that is yep. so that top publications uh, have a an incentive case for the long term. Right. If something's right. at the top, it's not necessarily just going to go down. There's a reason that something might persist over time, and if it does, it will benefit from the interest on deposits made by everybody else. So there's a possibility for blue chips to emerge. It's not necessarily going to be a constant cycle. Right, right. And then the increased trust leads to increased visibility, incredibly backed by public risk, yes. if not by corporations. Like that's, yes. that's the big kicker. Um, and then also what's interesting about Ethereum is what you wrote here, and I didn't even think about this, but publications are impossible to remove from the list. Yes. That's, that's a, and so I guess maybe this is a good time to then quickly talk about centralization versus decentralization. Sure. Because that's basically the, the, the rub, sure. if you will. Sure. So a centralized entity is one that has a specific set of servers and a specific set of buildings or relies on a specific company, uh, which can be shut down. If yeah. the government says, New York Times, we don't like you anymore, so, yeah. shut off your servers in Amazon or whatever, they can do that. There's a... A vulnerability here, a yes, single point of failure. Yes, yes. And most institutions and organizations are centralized in some way. It's just the way it's had to be up until recently. Mm -hmm. So the way a decentralized network works, uh, like Bitcoin or Ethereum on which Idea Market mm -hmm. runs, is instead of having centralized servers that somebody can shut down, the network runs simultaneously on thousands or millions of independently owned computers around yep. the world. And those belong to people who live in different countries, different companies, different governments that have different interests and are not going to, you know, come under all under your thumb. If China says no more cryptocurrency, Switzerland might say, you know what, I like it. Right. We're going to keep it. <laughs> so there's, uh, 
there's no governmental decree by which you can shut down a decentralized network. Uh, if you've read all the Harry Potter books, uh, I'm going to spoil the end. Now, okay. Okay. Where Voldemort. <laughs> yes. Uh, has he? He maintains his life force. Oh, he stays alive good point. Good point. by putting his soul into Horcruxes, yeah. into different objects, mm-hmm. and you know, spreading them across the ends yep. of the earth. And as long as one of those is fine, he's fine, basically. Yeah. Uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin and other decentralized networks basically work like that. Right. It's basically a Horcrux system yeah. that in order to take it down, you have to take them all down. And there are a lot, and wow. they belong to a lot of different people. And many so different countries, many different creeds, many different ways of thinking. All yes, of that. yes. Whereas one country might see it as a threat, another might see it as an opportunity. Sure. So th- even though one country might want you to stop, another country is going to want you to continue. Hey, come on. Yeah. Yes. So there's, there's not going to be a, a, a single point of failure that some government can just say, you know what, enough of you. Right, right. And when you, when you mentioned public narratives being decided by private interests is basically the, what we're kind of going up against. Yeah. Um, when we seek narratives, we naturally seek authority. That's something that you had also wrote. And yeah. then when seeking investments, we naturally seek value. So yeah. therefore, the best way to choose public narratives is with investment. It's almost yeah. that like skin in the game tactic or 100%, heuristic. 100%. Uh, I haven't read Skin in the Game, but I'm very much inspired by quotes from it. Yeah. I'll send you that blog post as well. Thank you. Yes, yes. No, it's a a Taleb book. um, Yeah, Taleb's great. I love it. Yeah. uh, In terms of seeking authority naturally, the way society has been organized until now, especially in the last hundred or so years, is if the New York Times says it, I can't be blamed for believing it because the New York Times says it. Right. So... When we seek authority, it's not because we're weak sheep. It's because we want to be able to talk to someone at work. Starting it's because point. we. Want, it's yeah. a basic functioning yes. fabric of society. Yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, it is. It is not a a bug, but a feature that we naturally seek authority. We want to hold everything together and be able to function, communicate with our fellow man. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so. That has been a large part of the power that media corporations have had. In playing that necessary role of mediating between the world and the consumer, it's also created a medium for the consumer to relate to each other. Ah, yes, yes. If you if you if you believe you know Bob.wordpress.com more than you believe the New York Times, if that was a thing in 1975, you'd be a crackpot, and yeah. a lot of people still are. I'm a proud one. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, yes, there, there's a function to seeking authority, and it's a sort of social cohesion and the problem though is that the social cohesion is being manufactured by corporations right and then so uh, there's one thing I, before we kind of go into where it's moving i guess let's talk about one i guess aspect of critique which i thought was great that you yourself were kind of pushing it out is that when we th- seek authority we don't just want to you know rob peter to pay paul and put our authority in something else that's not and, and so like markets in general, I mean, have not been very good at, you know, say climate change, externalities and stuff like that. Yeah. And what you said was on your, one of your tweets was, I think, great because idea markets can be implemented with abusive motives. So it seems extremely important to require certain criteria to protect against this list. What should they be? And you, you had some ideas, uncensorable, transparent, audible, simple, and then someone else threw in decentralized and, and properly incentivized, which we've kind of covered. Sure. So maybe let's talk about I guess the, 
not exactly negative connotations, but just in case, like what what that could mean at first, you know, because I guess you gotta build this credibility, right? And markets maybe not be the most efficient way, or let's let's just riff on that. Sure. Um, I'd like to roll it back a little bit before yeah. getting into that. Yeah, sure. And that is to say, uh, I mentioned tying credibility to visibility in okay. idea markets. Sure. It's, it's not just uh, another Reddit, another front page of the internet. Good point, yes. Uh, where people are going to go and be entertained or whatever. It's actually the back end of a new way of monitoring and filtering uh, the information economy, the attention economy. And uh, the first way it's going to do that is by eliminating fake news, corporate and otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, way, right. the way it's going to do that is with a browser extension yep. that a user has the ability to set the uh, filter level on. So when you look at Idea Market and you see the top 10 are these publications, you can have a browser extension that says, you know what, only show me stuff from these top 10. Or uh, actually, the first version that we're going to release is simply going to insert the uh, idea market rank or market capitalization uh, next to every link that you see. So whether you're on Facebook, you see uh, WikiLeaks, and you mm -hmm. see WikiLeaks is number two or something like that. Sure. And you can have a reference point for how much the public trusts the publisher uh, whose link you're being invited to read. Right. And so by extension, fake news becomes extremely expensive Mm, okay, these are the graphs that I saw on your web. Okay, okay. So yes. maybe briefly kind of show how, as over time, the ROI on the fake news goes down, right? And then the, the public trust yes. goes up eventually. Yes, yes. As the higher, as the market winners of Idea Market uh, have larger capitalizations, mm -hmm. they raise the threshold of credibility as measured in risk. Oh, for, so for everyone involved. For everyone. Yes, yes. So yes, if yes. the 100th publication has a million dollar market cap, then in order to be even remotely credible, you have to spend a million dollars. Or you have to earn trust so that people invest a million dollars and right. expect you to be attention worthy. Right. And then so with idea markets, so if the first is a browser extension, yeah. what is kind of, let's kind of riff on what, what is the next. I, can, I know it's very hard to look into the future predictions. I'm assuming you want uh, it to be awesome, but like, no, it's it's what, not. It's next? not hard. It's secret. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. That's I've got a good point. secret plans. Secret plans. Yes. Uh, but what I will tell you is, I would like to open source the protocol itself okay. so that it can be used to uh, curate other things using markets, like scientific papers, like patents, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. like products, so that you know fake reviews don't uh, matter so much, and um, anything any any category of thing that needs curation. But I think scientific papers is, is among the most important as well. I mean, not to get too far, but scientific research papers, especially in how they're behind paywalls and, and stuff like that. That's yes. a very interesting kind of dynamic. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then so our last question, I ask uh, every guest here, uh, one of the biggest proponents or um, heuristics, modalities of thinking that I kind of subscribe to is the overview effect. Uh, when astronauts get up past the you know, atmosphere and look down at Earth, they see how thin the atmosphere is. They see a little ball, you know, kind of floating in blackness. And what, what does that mean? Uh, and then also they see that there's no, ge there's only geographic boundaries, no, you know, international borders. And with that, they have a sense of um, collective, you know, kind of uh, consciousness with Earth, life, etc. 
if you were up on the space station or the moon, et cetera, and the entire world was looking up at you and you were kind of experiencing the overview effect, what, what would you say or do you have anything to say? I want to make sure I understand properly. Yeah. Do you mean I'm addressing the world? Yeah. Addre addressing the world. looking up at you. Like in a, in a metaphorical way or say you're on the ISS and there's a, a link, camera link to your face and it's going to every single person in the world. Every single person. To say. It's a big responsibility. I know, I know. That's why I put it up to you. What do you have to say? Because, I mean, the biggest thing is, like, I think all of us have a very subjective, like, awe-inspiring viewpoint of reality. And I just think that every single person from, you know, a boy in Bangladesh to a girl in France to a mother in Argentina all have something to say about this reality or the human experience, really. And I know that we talked earlier about trippiness, consciousness, etc., but you can... You can say anything or nothing at all, or look up Karezza. Karezza. K A R E Z Z A. Okay. Look it up. Yeah, look it up. Okay. Look up Karezza. Okay. I like that. Okay. All right. Well, we're gonna look up Karezka. Karezza. 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 Okay. Well, thanks for coming on Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations, Mike. I really appreciate it. Um, and you know, with that, until next time, at Astra. Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems.